What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? Maybe you've been looking around trying to get an answer for that question. We can help. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Vietnam, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email, the address ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener, Ace McKay handling social media today. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, you can uh, put that question of yours in the comments box. Ace will see it. He'll say, Eureka. Then he'll send it to us here in the studio, and uh, hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. Again, the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. We are live here on this first Tuesday of the first week of Lent as we celebrate the Feast of uh, St. Jacinto and uh, San, and uh, San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco Marto, of course, the two of the three Fatima children. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here. We're going to lead off with uh, with this one. This is from Peter in Minnesota. Dr. Anders, as a confessional Presbyterian, negative emotion or desires are seen as impure, thus evidence you might not be elect. This is very troubling to me. Its downstream effects make it difficult to deal with the inevitable negative emotion or temptation that arises in life. And the opposite is also true. Positive emotion or the lack of negative desires are seen as evidence that you are elect. So, how do Catholics relate emotions or desires and sin? And how is concupiscence understood? And where does sin begin. Thanks for your time, Peter, in Minnesota. Peter, I am so profoundly glad that you asked this question. I I really, really like it. It's a subject that I'm passionate about, actually, because it touches my own personal history so deeply, because I also grew up in the Presbyterian tradition and spent a good deal of time studying it, studying Puritanism, and, and really trying to make sense of the spirituality of the tradition. And so I know what you're talking about. And of course, the within Presbyterianism, the, the, the origins of this theology are that uh, Calvin, as I'm sure you're aware, introduced a novelty into sacramental theology, something that no one before Calvin had ever believed before, and that was the idea that baptism regenerates. And if you doubt that, you just go read the scholarship on Calvin and baptism. He really did think that, um, or at least that baptism was the occasion for regeneration. Okay. But that it doesn't work in every case. And so Calvin anticipated the, the, the specter of, you know, you bring two babies for baptism, and one of them gets regenerated, and one of them doesn't. Wow. And whereas in the Catholic view, everybody who's baptized is regenerate, though not all the regenerate necessarily persevere. And so uh, because of Calvin's doctrine of election, right, because if you, were, if you weren't elect, then the sacraments were not going to be efficacious in, in your particular case. And so it set up this problem for Presbyterians and, and Calvinists and people in the Reformed tradition generally 
of how do I know I'm one of the people in whom baptism took? How, am I, how do I know I'm one of the people that, Jesus, that uh, was genuinely regenerated? How do I know that my faith is not spurious? And there, there wasn't a single qu- answer to that question in Calvinism. There were lots of answers to it. And Puritanism was a, was a massive experiment in trying to answer the question, how do I know I'm elect? How do I know I'm saved? And there were different, there were different schools of thought. So some were deeply moralistic. You know, Theodor Beza, for example, is sometimes um, labeled with um, the syllogismus practicus, which is the idea that if I'm elect, then my life will bear good, positive moral fruit so I can infer election from my moral behavior. Uh-huh. Um, then there were others that took more of the emotional line. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, his famous book, Religious Affections, uh, was all about being able to discern signs of election from the quality of your emotional, your affective life. And there were others like Anne Hutchinson, the antinomian, that said there are no signs uh, other than just the, the, the raw act of faith itself. But, uh, but, I, but I understand the, the dilemma that you're talking about. Now, that's the history of it in, within the Reformed tradition. None of that reflects the Catholic view on emotion or assurance of salvation or election or anything of the sort. Okay. So first of all, for a Catholic, emotions as such are, are morally neutral. They are neither good nor bad. They are the occasion of moral acts, because if you, know, if you have a good emotion, a bad emotion, it might induce you to a certain kind of activity um, that can become morally relevant. But the only thing that's morally relevant are acts of the will, and the will is not an emotion. The will is a function of your intellectual nature, your ability to rationally differentiate between things perceived under the description good. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of reason, the will, not, not an act of emotion. Emotions themselves are kind of morally neutral, although they may condition your activity. Furthermore, you can have a really horrible set of emotions. You can have a, a, a deeply negative or neurotic response to some circumstance, mm-hmm. and it does not at all indicate that you are in a bad state. And in fact, it can be an occasion for deep sanctification and holiness so that, you know, a person who feels utterly bereft of God, for example, or, or you know, alienated or confused, is a, a, that, that, that kind of experience can help you to identify with the suffering and even with the suffering Christ on the cross and, and may actually be closer to a sign of God's favor than of God's disfavor. And, uh, and by no means can you read say, the Spirit's activity or your election off the positive affect of your emotional life. That, that is actually a heresy in the Catholic tradition called Messalianism, wow. associated with a 4th century sect of the same name. Um, and Pope Benedict XVI, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, wrote a letter about that, 1989, entitled Some Aspects of Christian Meditation. Go read it. And he talks all about the era of Messalianism and mistaking the, 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 your, your psychological response with the Spirit's activity in the soul, which typically manifests in a mysterious way. Now, when you talk about concupiscence, um, the Reformed tradition, the Lutheran tradition, regard concupiscence itself as morally culpable, as guilty. If you're concupiscent, you are sinning by definition. The Catholic position is that concupiscence is not a sin. The, the immoderate desire or attachment to bodily pleasure is not itself sinful, but it can be the occasion of sinful acts. But it can just as well be the occasion of virtue, because how can you praise continence or, or temperance uh, in someone for whom uh, they don't struggle against the temptations of the flesh? And so, yeah. say, being drawn immoderately to some bodily pleasure and then resisting that temptation, not only is that not 
uh, guilt. Not, not, that's not condemning. That's actually an occasion of merit. Well, there you go. Hey, Peter in Minnesota, thanks so much for your email. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, lines are open for you right now. Three being screened. Three are open at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon on EWTN. It's called a communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. There's a line available for you at 833-288-3986. Get to those phones in just a second here. New from EWTN Publishing, New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. This is the book you will need to challenge atheists and agnostics to defend their ideologies logically and rationally, and to fortify your own beliefs. You'll find empirical evidence for theism in a way that you can easily understand, and it explains how atheism twists reality to justify its view by, quote, selective skepticism. Great book, New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. It's available right now from EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Rosie in San Antonio, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Rosie, a blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Hello, um... I'm just having a uh, time, a hard time with um, between being um, a Catholic and um, I, I was brought up a Catholic, and um, I have a group of uh, believers that uh, we pray. We have a little prayer group, and um, and they're not Catholic anymore, and um, they're trying. You know, I mean, they've done uh, research. You know, like on you know, the Catholic religion, and, and um, so, like, usually, you know, if I have a question or something, they'll, you know, they'll answer me, but I'm still a little confused on um, letting go of, you know, the Catholic religion. I don't know if you understand what I'm I saying. I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah, thank you so very much. I really appreciate the question, Rosie. So maybe this will help you. I, I hope it will. Um, my Me personally, I was not raised a Catholic. I was raised in the Protestant tradition, the evangelical church, probably something like what your friends are now involved in. And I was taught growing up that the Catholic Church was terrible and that you couldn't go to heaven if you were a Catholic. Catholics weren't even really Christians. And uh, I was taught that Catholic tradition was just man-made invention and all I needed was the Bible and Jesus. That's how I was brought up, and I really didn't like the Catholic Church, wanted nothing to do with it. And uh, I I went on to the seminary. I was going to be a minister in the Protestant Church. And after that, I went on for Ph.D. studies in the history of Christianity and theology. And what I found out was that the story that I had been told about Catholicism was false, and the story that you've been told is false. And this idea that all you need is Jesus in the Bible, that that's a very modern idea. That's a very modern idea. And, and the kind of Christianity that your friends practice is maybe just a few centuries old, whereas Catholicism is 2,000 years old. And, you know, the Bible that they're quoting was actually put together by the Catholic Church. You go back to the 4th century, the bishops of the Catholic Church gathered the texts of sacred scripture and compiled them and presented them to the world as the Bible. And so it's really a product of Catholic tradition. 
And so if your friends want to get rid of Catholic tradition, they had also better get rid of the Bible because the Bible is a product of Catholic tradition. It was put together by the Church. In that very same Bible, we can look to Jesus himself, and I'm thinking here of Matthew chapter 28, and ask, what did Jesus say about these matters? Did Jesus, in fact, give us a way of knowing the truth about himself? And one thing you'll find when you look to the teaching of Jesus is that Jesus never told his disciples to go into all nations and hand out the Bible. He told them to go into all nations and teach. That is orally, right? So he gave these authorized individuals, his 11 apostles, the authority to go teach everything he'd commanded, and that was all his oral tradition. And he promised that he would be with them forever till the end of the age, and that whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven, and whatever they loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven, and that whoever hears them would hear him. In other words, Jesus founded the Catholic Church, and he gave the Church the, the charge of teaching, and a promise that he would be with the church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so when your friends come by and say, well, you know, the, you don't need to follow the Catholic Church, you need to follow Jesus, they're actually contradicting the teaching of Jesus. Ooh. Because Jesus said that it's through these people that you will come to know him, not, not through your friends, but through the church that he founded. On this rock I will build my church, Jesus said. Now, you know, it, it could be that your friends have an enjoyable experience of church. Maybe they have a deeply felt spirituality, and that's all fine. That's not, not a bad thing. Um, but, uh, but they don't have the fullness of the Christian faith, which we find in the Catholic Church. So uh, rest assured that you, you, you mentioned that your friends have studied. I, uh, I would venture to say they haven't studied enough, <laughs> not nearly enough. Mm. And what they've read has been very narrow, and, uh, and there's an entirely different way of construing the data. But at the end of the day, your friends were not called by Jesus and given the power of binding and loosing. Jesus didn't say to them, Who, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Go unto all nations and make disciples. He said that to the Catholic Church. Now, you know, when they raise specific objections with you, oh, why do Catholics do this? Why do Catholics do that? I'm always, always here to answer those kinds of questions. And I will answer any of them that you have. So, you know, please keep in touch with me and with this show and call us back and ask your specific questions and we'll get into all of those. But as for the global question of what did Jesus do? Did he give us your friend's religion or the Catholic faith? He established the Catholic faith and you should not leave the Catholic Church because it's the church that Jesus founded. And I'm here to help you any way that I can. Is that helpful for you, Rosie? Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> you are most welcome. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. One line open, 833-288-3986. It is called to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go to Stephanie now in Ontario, listening online, EWTN.com. A blessed Lent to you, Stephanie. What's on your mind today? Thank you. Um, so I've been attending a Ukrainian Byzantine um, Catholic church for almost two years. Good. Um, and I was baptized when I was a baby um, in an Anglican church, and that's like the only sacrament I've received. Um, so the priest said that, like, moving forward, I like I've been doing some lessons and stuff, and that I can go to confession and receive Holy Communion now. Um, so 
he asked me to do an examination of conscience for my confession. And, like, I'm, like, going back, like, 40 years. Mm. Like, how I don't, like, I'm just overwhelmed, and I don't know. Like, I just, I'm just a little bit, like, overwhelmed and confused about, like, having to I can help you. I can help you. Not a problem. Yeah, thank you so much. So this can be a wonderful opportunity for you. And first of all, you are not obligated to confess every sin you've ever committed. That would not be possible. It would not be possible. Um, what, what you, all you need to do is think in terms of the, the grave sins that you've committed. I mean, these are the humdingers, mm. the real whoppers. And, and even then, the likelihood is you, you couldn't possibly list a number because, you know, if you're like me, you've done a lot of whoppers in your life. And so what you can do is say, you can talk about, like, major categories. So, I mean, I'm sure this isn't your case, but let's say, for example, that, you know, maybe you were a hitman for the mob, <laughs> and you've got a lot of murders, you know, to your credit. So your confession might look something like this, you know. Father, I was a hitman for the mob, and I killed a lot of people. That's enough. You know, you don't know how many. There were maybe hundreds of them, right? But I, I did a lot of them, Right. Think like that. Think in terms of, you know, this is this category of thing, and I did a lot of that, and here's this other category of thing, and I did a lot of that. Big picture. Yeah, big picture. When I myself went to confession for the very first time as an adult, because I'm also a convert, I just went down the Ten Commandments. And I was like, check, 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 <laughs> check, done that, done that, done Ooh. that, you know. And, um, and, uh, and that was good, you know. And then moving forward... Yeah, if you want to be more fine-grained, that's okay. But you don't you don't have to beat yourself up on this. I mean, as long as you're not, like, deliberately concealing some grave offense just, you know, out of embarrassment or shame or maybe you're not penitent or something, mm. then you're fine. You're fine. Now, you know, you're, you told me you, your priest mentioned you could you could go to confession. That's great. And you can go to communion. That's great. I hope he also talked to you about chrismation, uh, which is the what the Easterners call confirmation. So if you only receive the sacrament of baptism, you'll need to get the other sacraments of initiation, which are which are Holy Communion and Chrismation in the Ukrainian Catholic Church. So remember to don't, don't let that one slide. Stephanie, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Jeff is watching us on YouTube today. Jeff says, my non-Catholic family doesn't understand confirmation. They think they have all the Holy Spirit they need from baptism, and they think it's an addition in history, an addition in history from Catholics. How can I respond charitably? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, the biblical theology on the Holy Spirit is diverse, and there's, there's more than one account of the Spirit's ministry given in Scripture. And remember that Scripture is not a theology textbook. It's not there to give us a kind of comprehensive account of, of Christian theology. Um, uh, but, uh, but here's some things we find. When you go to the Old Testament, the, the coming of the Spirit is almost always associated with empowerment for some specific task. So, and it doesn't necessarily have something to do with holiness of life. So, for example, uh, Samson, the Holy Spirit would come on him, and he would pick up a donkey's jawbone and kill a bunch of people under the power of the Spirit. Yeah. Right? Um, sometimes people might prophesy, but again, that's not necessarily associated with holiness of life. So Balaam, the pagan prophet, was moved by the Spirit of God to proclaim Israel's victory over enemies, even though he himself was pretty adverse to that outcome, right? So, but that's that's the way it works. Or, or you know, it would come on the, uh, the, the 70 elders with Moses who were given power to be effective judges over the people. Right? But it's always some sort of empowerment for ministry, generally speaking. 
And that's the way the Spirit's ministry is conceived in the book of Acts. When, uh, uh, when the people say to Peter, what shall we do? And he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, it comes to manifest in ecstatic speech. They speak in tongues, they proclaim the Word of God with boldness. And the other places that the Spirit comes in the book of Acts, it always seems to be that kind of empowerment for ministry. There's, there's some kind of witness, there's some kind of testimony, there's some sort of Spirit-inspired speech that comes with that gift of the Spirit. But if you look at the gift of the Spirit in the writings of St. Paul, you find a very different picture. Paul does not talk about very much the gift of the Spirit as a kind of empowerment for ministry, and when he does, he seems to dismiss it as being of a lesser kind of concern. For Paul, the real power of the Spirit is the transformative power in our moral lives. When we die with Christ through baptism and are reborn with him to new life, and the Spirit is the one that empowers us to live a moral, ethical life filled with love and joy and peace, patience, goodness, kindness, etc. Now, these two theologies, Paul's theology of the Spirit and Luke's theology of the Spirit, they're not contradictory. They're just different. They're just different. And one of them is explicitly associated with baptism. That's this, this rebirth, this regeneration in the Spirit that gives us a new way of being in the world. The other one is specifically giftedness for ministry, which is not necessarily associated with holiness of life. And you find that in Old Testament to new. And so when that second gift of the Spirit, the second, well, not second gift, but that second aspect of the Spirit's ministry is mentioned in the book of Acts, it comes through the laying on of the apostles' hands, not through baptism specifically. So, you know, Acts chapter 8, for example, um, it, the you know, disciples go down to Samaria because the believers there hadn't received the Holy Spirit in that second sense. And so they lay hands on them and they receive the Spirit and they speak the Word of God with boldness. Okay. Now, um, when uh, in the early church, very early, I'm talking, you know, before the fourth century, when people joined the Catholic faith, they were typically baptized as adults because they were adult converts, uh-huh. and they would receive initiation into the church all in one fell swoop. So they would be baptized, they would be anointed with oil, and they would be uh, admitted to Holy Communion all in one ritual. And uh, the the theology of the church develops more explicitly after its legalization. You know, when you're when you're when you're not always worried about having your head chopped off, you can <laughs> sit back and think more deeply about what you're doing. Yeah. You know, so you you find a kind of explosion of of theological writing from the fourth century after after the, the legalization, after the Edict of Milan. And, uh, and so then you begin to find the fathers of the church actually reflecting on the elements of Christian initiation and differentiating the gift of the Spirit given in baptism from the gift of the Spirit given in this holy anointing, the one they associate, of course, with the scriptures on baptism, the other they associate with this laying out of hands that we definitely see witnessed in the book of Acts. And so while there is historical development in the way the church articulates the sacrament, the roots of them are there in sacred scripture itself. Okay. Jeff, thanks for your question. Here's a quick one now from Vic on YouTube. Are you familiar with the doctrine, fewness of the saved? I watched a video about St. Leonard seeing 33,000 people who died, two went to heaven, three went to purgatory, and the rest of the 33,000 were damned. Yeah, sure. Let's hope Leonard's wrong, man. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not pulling for Leonard on this no, one at all, right? No. So, of course, I'm familiar with this. And Jesus said that 
that uh, the why the road is wide that leads to destruction, and many find it, and the road's narrow that leads to life, and and, uh, and few find it. How to cash that out, though, is a different story, right? I mean, how are we to understand that? How are we to interpret that? And you have to balance it against the texts of Scripture that say that God desires everyone to be saved, uh, and the tradition of the Church, which literally prays for everyone to be saved, and and teaches as a dogmatic fact that God offers grace sufficient to salvation to everyone. And so I, that leaves me with this conclusion, that I need to be doubtful about my own salvation and hopeful about everybody else's, right? So that, I, so that I'm sufficiently motivated to stay the path and, and avoid serious moral error in my own life while refraining from passing judgment on my neighbor, uh, except Leonard. I'm going to pass judgment on him. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Thanks so much for your question, Vic. Uh, well, in a moment, we're going to get to uh, Ray in Fort Worth, Charles in Mobile, Carol in New Jersey. Lots more straight ahead on the Tuesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN Radio family, Aquinas Communications, 98.3 FM in Dubuque, Iowa. They are celebrating eight years with us this week. Congratulations to uh, Mr. Oglesby and his great team there at KCRD from all your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Ray, a first-time caller in Fort Worth, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Afternoon. Hello, Ray. Blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Howdy from uh, Texas. Uh, uh, just a quick question. One, I see the Green Catechism on on your desk, and I'm a, a returning Catholic. I was away from the Church for uh, close to 50 years. I don't know which one is the latest one. I see second edition. Uh, I bought one. It's called... Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church revised in accordance with the official Latin text. Uh, the size of the print, I need a magnifying glass to look at. And uh, the other question I have is the Bible. Uh, I I see a Great Adventure Ascension Bible. Uh, you know, I'm reading now the uh, introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament by Bergsma. Uh, but which is the latest by the Catholic bishop, uh, if I can get an evolution of how they change. The yeah, last one sure. I know is the two-way reading. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So when it comes to the Catechism, Pope John Paul II promulgated the Catechism of the Catholic Church in, what, 1992 or 3-ish, and then the, I guess the English language translation came out a couple years after that. Uh, but it has been through a few editions since. The most recent recension was in 2018, um, but the, the variations are minor, and so honestly, it doesn't matter much in my judgment which one you lay your hands on. I think the original was in French, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. yeah, the typical was in French. They okay. composed it in French, and, and then they did translations for that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, So it doesn't really matter that much. But the, the most recent changes were, at, were made in 2018. Uh, when it comes to the translation of the Bible— um, here, I don't think it's nearly as important that you go with whatever the most recent uh, Catholic-inspired or Catholic-authorized translation is. I don't think that matters so much. What matters is that you have a, a Bible that is uh, readable in translation and uh, and accurate to the original. Personally, I like the New Revised Standard Version Catholic edition. Um, that's my own preference. Uh, the New American Bible is the one that's copyrighted by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, 
But that, you know, like that, that, that has absolutely nothing to do with the criterion that I just articulated. I mean, don't, it may not be the best or the most readable translation, but it is the one that we use in mass, if, mm-hmm. that's a, if that can be of interest to you. But like I said, I myself read the interesting Catholic edition. Mm-hmm. And I believe he was asking about a large print version. I believe those are available. Probably. And you might also, if you're not, if, it's, if, if reading text is difficult for you, uh, Father Mike Schmitz has his Catechism in a Year. Sure does. Which By, is a, you know, a, a, online product. Right. And right here on EWTN Radio at 10 p.m. Eastern every night. We begin with the Bible in a Year from 10 to 10.30 Eastern, and then the Catechism in a Year from 10.30 to 11 See what uh, you Eastern know being time. program director. Well, I've picked up a few things <laughs> along the way, I hope. Uh, Ray, thanks so much for your call. Charles is listening in Mobile on the great Archangel Radio, AM 1410. Charles, happy uh, Lent to you, sir. A blessed Lent. What's on your mind today? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I had a uh, question about uh, the difference in uh, races of the people with Adam and Eve were our first parents, and Noah and his wife was second parents. In such a short period of time, how did all the races come about? Yeah, thanks. So your question seems to presume the literal truth of the Genesis narrative as providing a kind of sufficient explanation for the question of human origins. And that is definitely the way a Protestant fundamentalist would look at the text and say, whatever I think about human origins and, and races and this kind of thing, I have to find a way to explain that entirely within the narrative of the book of Genesis and admitting no other data, right? That's not the way Catholics look at the book of Genesis, and it's certainly not the way we look at human origins. And so um, I am now going to leave the world of official Catholic catechetics and take off my Catholic apologist hat and put on the just little old me Dave hat, right, in my <laughs> private personal theological opinion that you are free to disagree with. Okay, okay? all right. Um, but this is an opinion that is allowable by the Catholic Church. Uh, it is not mandatory, but you can hold, you are allowed to hold it. And my position is that if I want to ask, answer the kinds of questions that you're asking, the Bible is not the text that I go to to answer those kinds of questions because the Bible doesn't address them. Rather, I'm going to go to the discipline of anthropology and human evolution, right? And so, uh, I mean, and that's a massive field, of course, as you're well aware, and the origins of, you know, modern biological humans from Africa and various species of early human that propagated the world. And, you know, uh, Homo sapien is the one that has survived, but it went through a lot of different variations and has a lot of crossbreeding with Neanderthals and Cro-Magnons and other early, you know, proto-human species. And, of course, they evolved differently in different parts of the world and, you know, gave uh, rise to the different genetic characteristics that we see. And, you know, my ancestors came from a you know, northern climb without a lot of sunlight, and so I don't have as much pigment in my skin as somebody that, you know, whose ancestors came from closer to the equator, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I have a, 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 a an ability to digest uh, lactose, where that's, you know, part of the development of European humans, whereas other people on the planet, you know, don't because of where their sociocultural demographic uh, developments. And, and these are these are natural scientific and anthropological questions. Um, and, uh, you know, for when it comes to the Catholic theology bit, what the Church has said is all of that data that anthropologists and archaeologists dig up is, like, that's real. I mean, that it, it's part of reality, and you have to come to terms with reality, and the faith can never contradict reason, and the reason can never contradict the faith. Uh, so we have to figure out ways to fit the Catholic picture of the human person 
together with what the anthropological and evolutionary data show us. And what Pope Pius XII urged Catholic theologians is he says, look, however you construe this data, make sure you preserve the unique relationship of the human species to the second Adam, that is Jesus. Because, see, if Christ is the second Adam, right, that, that says something special about the nature of the human person and origin, uh, that Christ came to reform what was lost in Adam, namely that we be in the likeness and image of God. And so that's kind of your guiding uh, post right there. You have to maintain that special soteriological, that is to say, salvation relationship to the uniqueness of Jesus as the second Adam. But beyond that, you know, you're you're free to speculate in the in the world of anthropology and evolution and science and all the rest of it. So I just think that's the right way to go about answering the question and to let go of fundamentalist assumptions about the way the Bible functions. The Bible really doesn't exist to answer questions about human anthropology, except as they pertain to theological anthropology, namely our relationship to God, not so much our relationship to one another in terms of human evolution. Charles, thanks so much for your call from Mobile. Here is Carol now in New Jersey, listening on the great Sirius XM uh, Channel 130. Carol, what's on your mind today? Uh, thank you for taking my call. I've been listening to an extra Jesus on the Bible, um, and the person who is doing it has spoken about more than once the middle coming of Jesus, which was in 70 A.D., at the destruction of the temple, and that Jesus uh, allowed this destruction and uh, actually wanted the destruction of the temple. Then I've never heard of anything like this. Is this true? Yeah, thanks. I know what this person is talking about. Their, their vocabulary is, is uh, idiosyncratic, to say the least. So here's what's going on. All right, um, when you read the Gospels, it's fairly clear that Jesus talks about an imminent end of the world, uh, an, an imminent coming of the kingdom of God when things are going to get turned on their head and the Son of Man is going to be revealed and the elect will be revealed and the enemies of God will be punished, etc., etc., etc. And so in the ancient Christian world, there were, there were a lot of people that thought, well, that's going to happen in our lifetime. Right. Yeah. In fact, St. Paul wrote his letter to the Thessalonians because, well, Second Thessalonians in particular, in that uh, there were folks that figured it must have come and gone, and they'd missed it because they had that much of an expectation of an imminent arrival. And, um, uh, but, but, but then, you know, he didn't, didn't seem to show up. And so the dominant view became, particularly with St. Augustine in the 4th century, that uh, that the apocalyptic, the end-of-the-world type passages in sacred scripture must, must refer to, well, not the imminent end, but, but, um, but they really describe a kind of perennial condition, mm. right? That the church is sort of always living on the eschatological edge, and that uh, these apocalyptic events and antichrists and things of that sort are kind of always with us. And so from the beginning of time to the end of the time, you know, the end of the world that I need to be most concerned with is my own personal end. Right, mm. and and not so much the you know this idea of an imminent end tomorrow or sure. that could be dated on the calendar. Um, now, in the Reformation, Protestants brought up again this idea of the imminent end of the world, and um, and the Antichrist, and they said, well, that's obviously the Pope. Pope's the Antichrist, and so you know now we've overthrown the papacy, and Jesus is going to come back any second now. And so they made a lot of hay out of trying to identify the Pope with the Antichrist. And so here come the Jesuits, Catholic apologists, 
that that say we've got another way of reading the data about the rise of the Antichrist and the end of the world. And you'll note that in Scripture it seems to be tied to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And well, that happened in 70 AD. And so Jesus did fulfill these prophecies about the end of the world and the destruction of the temple and cataclysm and mayhem, but it all happened in 70 AD. And so the idea that biblical prophecy prophesied the future from the point of view of the biblical writers, but the ancient past from our point of view. And that perspective is called preteritism, and it's a, it's a specific school of biblical interpretation, and you don't have to hold it. You are not required to be a preteritist. But it, uh, but it is the line that says Jesus' end-of-the-world prophecies were, in fact, fulfilled in 70 A.D., and we are now, in some respects, in a quote-unquote new world. Okay. Right? Now, there are lots of variations on preteritism. There are some people that think that 70 A.D. was kind of the end of the show, and, like, that's it. That's all she wrote, and there's nothing else to look forward to. Then there is the position that I think your instructor has taken, which is that there's a kind of quasi-end in 70 AD to be followed by a humdinger of an end sometime in the future, (laughs) right? And like I said, when it comes to interpreting biblical prophecies, there are as many theories as there are theoreticians. And I think what you're getting here is a person who is an idiosyncratic teacher and is putting forth their own personal opinion as if it were a dogmatic fact, mm. which is always a dangerous thing mm-hmm. to do, and and calling that destruction of the temple in 70 AD, they're just arbitrarily labeling that the middle coming of Jesus, as if that were a thing everybody should know and believe in. And what I'm telling you is, you don't have to hold that, right? That that is a that is a that is an idiosyncratic theory that seems to me to be a derivative of this doctrine of preteritism that is not the doctrine of the Church. I mean, it doesn't necessarily contradict the doctrine of the Church, but you're not obligated to hold that as a Catholic. And, and the, 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 the general Catholic eschatology view of the end of time is that these end-of-world end of prophecies and antichrists and all that describe not some sort of datable, imminent end to history so much as a perennial condition. Now, the world will end at some point in the future, but we don't know when that is, and Jesus says we can't know, and, and, and all that sort of thing. So don't, you know, just live your life, be holy, dying, hopefully go to heaven, and leave the end-of-time stuff up to God. Sounds like a good plan to me. Uh, Carol, thanks so much for your call from New Jersey. Call to communion here on EWTN. If you're up early in the morning, be sure to join us for Fire on the Earth, weekdays at 5.15 a.m. Eastern, with your host, Peter Herbeck. On tomorrow's program, Peter reflects on St. Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, also how God wants his people to really be a source of light for the world, our neighbors, and one another. Check it out. Great program, Fire on the Earth with Peter Herbeck, 5.15 a.m. Eastern tomorrow morning and every weekday right here on EWTN Radio. Off to Bismarck we go for Alice and listening to the uh, Real Presence Radio. Hey there, Alice. What's on your mind today? One thing, two things, really. One is uh, who in the world was it that tempted Job? I have a a quote here that says that it was a good angel named Satan, and I took exception to that. The other question is, someone, we were talking about the Holy Spirit, and I mentioned that God is the three persons, and he has always existed. 
And she took exception to the fact that the Holy Spirit is not has nothing to do with the Old Testament. He only appeared when God created him as the fire coming down in the New Testament. Yeah, thanks. I can speak to those both of those questions. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So, uh, with respect to the book of Job, um, if you if you go to the text of Job, it, it says that the the accuser uh, tempted Job or, or or threatened Job. And in in uh, in Hebrew, the word for accuser is Satan. You know, the Satan. It is not at all clear. It's not at all clear that the sacred writer of Job has in mind the historical devil, right? The, 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 the devil of Christian theology who is the prince of the demons and the ruler of the spirits of the air. It's not at all clear that that's what Job has in mind, I mean, that that's what the writer of Job has in mind. Now, obviously, there have been Catholic interpreters through the centuries, like Gregory the Great, for example, that would interpret the Satan of Job as the devil. But the text doesn't require that interpretation. And you could legitimately, I'm not saying this is correct, I'm just saying it's conceivable, you could conceivably argue that the Satan is not the devil with a capital D, but simply a spirit that the Lord makes use of in order to test the virtues of Job. Either one of those interpretations is permissible. Either one of them can be reconciled with the Christian faith. If you want to hold that it is the historical devil with a capital D, you're allowed to do that. You're in good company if you think that. But if for scholarly or academic reasons you think that's maybe not the best reading, there's nothing There's nothing at risk to your Catholic faith in saying, well, it may not be the devil with a capital D. It's just a, a tempting spirit that was used by God. Okay. And there was another question? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Did the Holy Spirit come into existence uh, uh, after the ascension of Jesus? And the answer to that question is emphatically no. And and you are absolutely right in your convictions that God's triune nature is eternal and unchanging. He is always and eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no moment uh, before which the Holy Spirit did not exist. There you go. Alice, thanks so much for your two great questions. Try to get to as many calls as we can. Stephen is a first-time caller in Manassas, Virginia, listening also on Sirius XM Channel 130. A blessed Lent to you, Stephen. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the call and uh, for Dr. Andrews' ministry. I thoroughly enjoy this when I hear it on the radio. Uh, two questions. First, if Dr. Andrews could comment on any books that would have a Jewish background for Jesus' teaching on the parables. I think Amy Jill Levine wrote one, read some mixed reviews on that. And then my second question would be uh, a good Catholic commentary on the book of Revelation or Apocalypse. Uh, Ian Boxall is a, a Protestant scholar, I think his name was Robert Grant, and another Protestant scholar, I think he's Episcopalian, Ian Paul, over at Commentaries. I was wondering if he had any opinion on those. So those would be my two questions. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, so you took the wind out of my sails on the parables, <laughs> because when you asked if I knew a one written from a Jewish perspective, my mind went immediately to Amy's 11, um, the short stories by Jesus. And uh, and so you've named that one, so I don't have another one lined up. That was my stock in trade. Let me give out the Jewish commentary on Jesus' parable answer book. Dang. And, and there you go. So I don't have another <laughs> one to recommend to you. Um, although, you know, there are some other well-known Jewish scholars of the New Testament 
Um, so Paula Fredrickson and Pamela Eisenbaum are two other Jewish scholars who write about Jesus and St. Paul in the New Testament. And their stuff's, you know, fairly interesting to me. Okay. Um, when it comes to Catholic commentaries on the book of Revelation, you know, you, you, might, you might look at the Sacrapagina uh, series edited by Daniel Harrington. The volume on Revelation is by uh, Wilfred Harrington, OP, no, no relation, I think, to Daniel. Um, I also like the uh, the Catholic Commentary and Sacred Scripture series, um, but um, I, I, I can't actually personally confess to having studied both of those commentaries in depth, but I, I like the series. Okay. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Pat now in Florida, listening also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Pat, a blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Thank you, Tom. Uh, Dr. Anders, you answered something remotely similar to this question a little earlier, so hopefully I'm not treading the same dirt. But I have long been very, very confused about God's timeline of creation. I saw a—and it's only got more confusing recently when I saw a Netflix series on these people they discovered in caves in South Africa Africa, called Homo uh, Neleus or something like that. Who were, cre- who, who were around 250,000 years before Neanderthals. So I've just totally lost the, the timeline in a linear kind of way about how everything unfolded. Was Adam and Eve first, then came Cro-Magnon man and all these, or did all of these Homo genus species happen before the, cre- the, the, the uh, Garden of Eden story, and where do the dinosaurs come into it? I, it's a big question. Hopefully you can help me make a little bit more sense of it all. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Um, so, um, you know, I don't personally think that the perspective of Genesis is one that admits these kinds of questions. Uh, I don't think that the sacred writer of Genesis was writing with a mind to enable us to create the kind of historical timeline that you're that you're asking about, and um, I think he had entirely different objectives. And and in fact, the the scope of his narrative seems to be fairly constrained uh, geographically as well as temporally. You know, to the to the ancient you know, Near East mm-hmm. and and to the the social and cultural and thought world of the time. And I, I see the Book of Genesis situated in a, an entirely different context, which is one. Uh, in conversation, kind of polemical conversation with Babylonian creation myth. So the Genesis seems at points to borrow from and at other points to, to dissent radically from the Enuma Elish of Babylonian creation myth. And I also see it uh, reflecting some of the, the political interests of the Davidic monarchy. So I think the text was probably written someplace around the 10th century BC or later, um, you know, to reflect those you know, very local and polemical concerns, and they obviously raise perennial theological issues about our relationship to God, moral responsibility, and the like. And that's, I think, the way Pope John Paul II approaches these texts. The most authoritative commentary on the Genesis account of creation that we have from the magisterium in recent years is the theology of the body that John Paul II uh, preached, you know, for two years or however long he worked on that topic, and we've got those, you know, published documents. And he makes the explicit claim very early on in that reflection on the human person that the, the Genesis account really is not there to answer questions about our, you know, our, our geological prehistory, but rather our, our theological standing with God. And I really think that, that uh, that's the way we have to look at the text. Um, 
And so I think that, you know, there's a fair amount of, uh, of uh, creative liberty, you know, artistic license granted mm. to the sacred writer. Um, you know, when it comes to the questions of human origins, and I mentioned this earlier on the show, uh, you know, if I want to get into the anthropological literature, I think that's the, that's the appropriate realm for that, is to get into the scientific and anthropological literature. And I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm personally, as a Catholic, utterly unbothered, I'm, I'm untroubled by all these questions of human anthropology and the different, you know, homo species and so forth. That just, that's all interesting to me. It's just, it's, it's data, maybe get some, you know, interesting genetic information about, you know, I don't know why I like raw meat or something, you know, <laughs> but, which I don't actually eat anymore. Uh, but if you want someone who tries to sort of square the circle on this um, and, and do what you're asking, there's an article by Kenneth Kemp called Science, Theology, and Monogenesis, which is one theologian's attempt to um, to reconcile everything we know about uh, human origins from mm-hmm. anthropology with what is dogmatically certain to Catholics. Someone else who who sort of uh, deals with that topic is uh, is Nicanor Austriaco, and his material is very easily accessible at the website Thomistic Evolution. Thomistic Evolution. So those are two Kenneth Kemp and and uh, Nicanor Austriaco have written extensively on the kind of question that you're asking. Although I. I Personally, I kind of think the whole thing's a little bit of a category mistake. Pat, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Uh, we have just enough time for Rick in Minnesota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Rick, we just have a few moments here. What's on your mind today? Okay, um, quick prelude to the question. I was reading Seward uh, Benedict of 16th the Life. In the first volume, um, the Pope said, well, I guess I'm a Platonist. And I both dropped the book out of my hand. But I thought it would help my understanding of Dr. Anders if I could ask, does he espouse any or belong to any philosophical school of thought? Yeah, uh, what a fun question. I wish I had more than half a second to, <laughs> to answer it. So there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever at all that far and away the most important school of, of uh, Hellenistic philosophy influencing the development of Christian thought was Platonism and Neoplatonism in particular. So if you look at Andrew Luth's book on the origins of Christian mysticism, for example, I mean, the, the Platonic roots of Catholic thought are just just profound. That continues to be true even in the mind of St. Thomas Aquinas, who is definitely Aristotelian most of the time, but the roots of his doctrine of God are Neoplatonic through and through. Wayne Hankey, uh, his, uh, his, his magnificent treatise, God in Himself, is an explication of the Neoplatonic roots, Proclean roots precisely, of Thomas's doctrine of God. So I'm very sympathetic to those positions. And then from a kind of an existential point of view, I I really am interested in Stoicism, which also deeply influenced Catholic monastic theology. Uh, Rick, thanks for your call. Dennis and Dayton, please call us back tomorrow. We'll have more time then. And Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.